All right, so the review, uh, if you want a, a digital copy, it's on E-Class. It's posted there, so you can find it. Uh, I know you all have a paper copy. Uh, before we get started, a couple of reminders. Uh, if you got a textbook at the beginning, I checked out a textbook to every single person in this class. On the first day, I asked you if you wanted to keep it. Some of you decided to keep the textbooks. Those of you that did not, I checked those back in. Uh, so if you kept your textbook, I need it back. Uh, so start looking for it and bringing it in uh, sometime after Thanksgiving break. So be sure you're taking care of that. And if you're not sure, I will run a report for you. And we'll see if you have a book and if you owe me a book. Uh, civic engagement is due the Sunday. Uh, the Sunday we get back. So that first weekend in December, it is due on that Sunday, the I think it's the 5th. Be sure you're taking care of that. If you turn it in on time and complete it, you get out of your civic engagement blog. All right. So if you do that, you don't have to blog about civic engagement. You just turn that in and you're done with civic engagement. Tomorrow is the last school board meeting that you'll be able to go to. So be sure uh, you're looking for that. I will try and send out a link uh, to the record uh, to the, the, the live meeting. Uh, but I do travel uh, in the afternoons picking up kids and doing kind of that kind of stuff. So I don't always get a chance to send that out, but be sure you're taking care of it. All right. Uh, the final, final blog. If you do not sign up and pay for the AP test, uh, you do have to write that thing. So you might want to get started on it. It's 12 to 15 paragraphs. It is a test grade uh, and it'll be due uh, in December. I'll give you a specific date when we get there closer. Um, could we get some clarification if we signed up or not? Because to be honest, I don't remember. Yeah, I'll, I can look later. Okay, if you're not sure if you signed up for the AP test, let me know and I can take a look uh, a little bit later. Uh, the final unit, so when we get back from Thanksgiving, it is a PBL, PBL unit, project-based. You can work with uh, up to four people in a group, and we will finally be on the same page as the face-to-face -face people. So if you want to work with someone uh, that is in a face-to-face -face class, you can work with them as well. Um, but you will be creating a podcast uh, <laughs> explaining... Uh, some of the stuff. So on the Monday we get back, everybody will come to class so I can go over everything that you have to do for this unit. Um, and then uh, I'll let you get working and then we'll go back to normal uh, for for that unit. Uh, the final exam, everybody's got to take the final exam. Uh, doesn't matter. Unfortunately, I can't exempt you from that this semester. You will get the chance to exempt your macro test um, in the spring. But for this one, everybody has to take it. So uh, just be aware. I think we take it on the Tuesday before normal exams. I think it's like the 14th. Uh, we, we're taking first period. The whole school is taking first period. So plan on being here. There's no uh, extra time and things like that for the final exam. It's either you're here uh, and you take it on time uh, or you have to set up a time to take it in the in the spring. Okay. Uh, AP Classroom FRQ. Be sure you're dealing with that. Uh, it closes on Friday. Uh, this Friday, the 19th. And it does close at 1145. Uh, it doesn't give me the opportunity to open it, leave it open until midnight. So 11.45, so if you start that thing at 11.40, uh, it's gonna close off in the middle of your writing. So be sure you're you're getting your writing done. Uh, and then the written final will just be our last FRQ, which will be a court case comparison. All right, okay, enough of the uh, announcement stuff. Let's get going with the review. Number one on there is Fed 78. Now, first off, I made a mistake uh, on this and I put Fed 78 with the legislative branch. Uh, it should be with the judicial branch. So just make note of that. That Fed 78 is a judicial thing. It's not a um, legislative thing. Uh, I redid the test a little bit uh, for the for this 
whatever, and I just messed up. So Fed 78, what you need to know about it is that it was a series of six of the Federalist Papers about the judiciary. And the main point from Fed 78 is the fact that Hamilton felt they were going to be the weakest branch. Okay, so the Anti-Federalists were concerned that these judges appointed by the president, no elections, nothing like that, were going to have this enormous amount of power to just do whatever they wanted to. Hamilton argues, yeah, they can make judgments, and yes, they're not going to be elected, but they do go through the confirmation process and all that kind of good stuff. But his main point, and this is the point you got to remember, was that they are reliant on the executive branch and the congressional branch to do anything, okay? So in order for the judicial branch's decisions to be enforced, they have to have the president, they have to have Congress on board, they have to have the states. You know, think back to one of the most famous decisions ever, Brown versus Board of Education, that integrated the schools. Did the states jump on board right after that decision in 54? No, it took until 66, all right? Uh, and it took a congressional act, you know, basically taking money away and, and arresting people in education who, with schools who didn't integrate. So they're reliant and they are the weakest branch because they are so reliant on the other two branches. All right, redistricting. Uh, redistricting, <laughs> you need to remember a couple of things. First off, redistricting is done by the states. Okay, most people, or I shouldn't say most, a lot of people think that redistricting is done uh, at the national level, but it is done at the state level. So the state legislatures are redistricting. They redistrict every 10 years. So the census happened, and right now they are planning redistricting here in Georgia and, and all across the country. Yeah. Didn't that, like, aren't they currently arguing about that in the House right now? Yeah. So, trying to debate on where to draw the so there's some maps that are out there. You can go look um, for them uh, that have been proposed by by the Georgia uh, legislature, but they got to go through the process of going to the House and the Senate and all that kind of stuff. So um, it is a difficult process because they got to try and meet some numbers. They got the, the the districts are supposed to be around seven hundred fifty thousand each, and so it's kind of sometimes tough um, to draw those lines. So it's not a it's not really a job that I envy. Okay. Now it used to be able to lead to something called gerrymandering, which I think is on our, our paper later on down the road, but gerrymandering, this is where they draw the lines to try and keep themselves in power. So, you know, right now we have a Republican Congress uh, at the state level here in Georgia. So maybe they draw the lines that benefits the Republicans states that have Democrats <clears throat> in control can draw the lines so that Democrats can maintain control. So that is that gerrymandering is something that happens. Uh, it is legal, okay, but the districts can be questioned, all right. But redistricting is the redrawing of the lines. Uh, it sometimes goes with reapportionment. That's where the the house numbers are changed. The 435 in the house is set. It'll always be 435. But when states gain people, population, uh, or lose population, the seats can change. So for this go around, uh, I'm pretty sure that New York. Ohio and one other state are losing seats. And so Florida, Texas, and I think Arizona is gaining seats. Okay. Florida has 27 house seats right now. So now they're going to have 28 representatives or 29 representatives. There's no way for those 29 reps to be in 27 districts. So they got to redistrict. 
All right, so reapportionment leads to redistricting. Georgia is not reapportioning, but we do have population shifts. And so they're going to try and change the districts around some. All right. Uh, pork barrel legislation. Pork barrel legislation is uh, kind of those pet projects for House members and sometimes for senators uh, that really benefit only their area. Okay. So if our representative, Carolyn Bordeaux, was to get something done uh, that really only benefited Gwinnett, that would be a pork barrel legislation. I know she's got something uh, out there that's trying to, to help, like Gwinnett Place Mall. You know, Gwinnett Place Mall is a ghost town, basically, and just taking up space out there. Um, so to try and revitalize that area. Now, I think it would be good for any place like that, but if the legislation specifically said, hey, Gwinnett's, Gwinnett Place Mall is going to be transformed, and that's it, that would be pork barrel because it only benefit us. It wouldn't benefit anybody else. And it could be money, projects, anything like that. <clears throat> All right, the House Rules Committee <clears throat> and responsibilities. First off, if you ever write an FRQ and you write about the Rules Committee, make note that it's only on the House side. There is no Senate Rules Committee, okay? So it's only House. This committee gets the bills after they have been worked on by the other committees. So we work on our bill. We pass it. We're ready to go with it to the full house. It goes to the rules committee. What do they do with it? Okay, a couple of things. First off, they set the agenda. They say, hey, we're going to talk about this bill on such and such date for this amount of time. And this is the person that's going to talk. This person can talk. And they set other rules with it, such as if it's opened or closed. All right. Um, so basically, the House Rules Committee really drives the agenda for a bill. They can make sure it passes. They can make sure it fails if they want to. Okay. Everything has to get done before the session ends. So if they don't want your bill to pass, hey, let's schedule that bill for debate at 458 on the last day of session. Are you going to get any debate and a vote done before five o'clock that day? Oh. No, you're not. Well, that's only the Senate side. Uh, so the House Rules Committee really controls uh, a lot of stuff that goes on in the House. The House Senate and differences, uh, there's a couple of big ones. The big one is the fact that basically the Senate is a lot less informal than the House. The House has all kinds of rules. Uh, they have limited debate. They can only debate for an hour, uh, whereas the Senate can debate for forever if they want to. And that leads to the filibuster um, you know, that's out there that can happen. So the big difference is the, the rules. House is very formal. Senate is very informal. Uh, and, and if you can just remember, that's kind of the, the biggest difference. Obviously, you know, 435 versus 100, the fact that one's based on population, one's based on equality. But I don't think there's questions like that on the test. All right, uh, filibustering and closure. So speaking of filibustering, uh, filibustering is a Senate-only thing. And it happens when a senator from the minority party wants to try and talk a bill to death. Now, can you actually kill a bill by talking it? No. No, you can't. All right. And this is one of the key things to remember because it gets phrased that way all the time. But a filibuster doesn't actually kill a bill. What you're trying to do is you're trying to delay everything else. So the Senate has hundreds of bills that they have to work on each session. And like I said, everything has to get done by the end of the session or it has to start over. So if I'm sitting here and I'm taking up two, three, four days on one bill. What am I doing? I'm pushing back 
everything else that needs to get done. So the goal is to put so much pressure on the majority party that they're willing to either make changes or some concessions to the bill, or maybe they just drop the bill altogether so that we can get other work done. All right. So that's what a filibuster is. And we've had some crazy stuff uh, back in the day when we had phone books. Somebody got up there and just started reading from the Washington, D.C. phone book. Uh, Ted Cruz, a couple of years ago, was up there singing lullabies to his kids uh, while he had his time. Yeah. Well, once you give up your time, you're done. Yeah. So you can't give it up. I mean, you have breaks and stuff like that, but you know, when it's just official, yeah, you got to keep going. Now, you can end a filibuster with a cloture, and that's what a cloture is, is a vote to end filibuster. Okay? And uh, excuse, let, me, let me tell you back. Cloture is a vote to end debate. All right? So I'm up here talking, 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 and you're like, you know what? I think we've heard enough about this bill. Let's just vote on it. I make a motion for cloture. Okay? The cloture motion needs a vote itself. If you get 60 votes, three-fifths, all right, 60 votes, then debate ends and we just move to vote on the issue. All right. Uh, does that make sense? So cloture is going to end debate. You need 60. Uh, that number's on the test. So be sure you got 60 down. Um, you got to have 60 of those things. That's why having 60 people in the Senate is a super majority because you really can do whatever you want to. I got up there on the minority party. I start to filibuster. Hey, I make a motion for cloture. I don't get two words out. Okay. And we're already voting to end debate. So it's a big tool. Uh, role of the Speaker of the House and their responsibility. So once again, there's only a Speaker on the House side. There is no Speaker of the Senate. Please don't ever write that in FRQ. There is no such thing as a Speaker of the Senate. It's only Speaker of the House. Uh, and the Speaker of the House is the most powerful position in all of Congress. The Speaker of the House right now is Nancy Pelosi, and she drives everything in the House. She sets the agenda. She works with the Rules Committee. She puts people on the committees. She names the chair people. Uh, she decides what's going to go to the floor for a vote. Back when they were doing the uh, articles of impeachment, she's the one that decided, hey, we're going to take him to the Senate. Uh, she really just sets the agenda for the House. It's a powerful position, uh, and it's why you want to be the majority party in the House. It's because the minority party on the House side really has no power. There's nothing you can do. You just, I mean, you can complain and argue against stuff the majority party is doing, but you don't really have any official tools to do uh, like you have with the Senate where you can filibuster to fight back. Okay. Uh, delegate versus trustee model. So uh, this is going to be uh, basically a mindset of whether I do what I want to do or do I do what my constituents want to do. Okay. Uh, if I'm a delegate, then you've elected me and I'm going to do whatever you think even if it doesn't jive with what I like, all right? So let's go pro-choice pro versus pro-life. If my constituents are pro-choice and I'm pro-life, if there's a measure that's going to be pro-choice, I'm still going to vote pro-choice because that's what my constituents want. I'm their delegate, okay? A trustee means you put me, you put me in charge. You trust me to make the decisions for you. So I'm pro-life, you're pro-choice, but... I'm going to make what I think is the best decision, and that's going to be I'm going to vote pro-life because that's what I believe, even though my constituents believe the other way, okay? Um, trustees don't last very long because their constituents realize, hey, they're not voting for me. They're voting for themselves, all righty? Uh, four types of committees and committee work, all right? So you've got standing, select, joint, 
and conference. Uh, the standing committee, those are those permanent committees. They are there. They've been there. They will be there. The rules committee has been around since like 1790. All right. So it's been there for a long time. Uh, this is where all the work is done in Congress is in these standing committees. Uh, every single bill that gets introduced goes to one of the standing committees for work. And uh, yeah, they, 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 they do a lot of work. Okay. Whether it's oversight and they're calling people in to question them, whether it's working on bills uh, and things like that, uh, they do a ton of work. The next type is select. All right. And uh, I should say one more thing about standing. They are separate. There is no standing congressional committee. It's a standing house committee and a standing Senate committee. They never meet. They never merge. They never work together. All right. Select committees are the same way. There's a select house committees and there's select Senate committees. They never come together. All right. So they are separate all the time. Uh, select committees are not permanent. They are created to typically do some kind of investigation. And then once the investigation is done, they go away. All right. So some famous examples, select the select uh, house committee on Watergate. Back when Watergate happened, they created this select committee to do an investigation into the Watergate scandal. Uh, and that's where all the, the information came from. Uh, the campaign reform, there was a select committee in the Senate that did uh, some investigative work on the, the campaign finance stuff. And they led to some reform, like trying to ban soft money and things like that. Okay. So select committees are not permanent, but they can last. Joint committees, they do come together. So joint committees are House and Senate, and they're going to report something. Okay. So joint committees are going to report something. Uh, the best example recently is the 9-11 report that was done by a joint committee. Uh, if you ever want to go to sleep really quickly, put on my podcast and then start reading the 9-11 report, uh, you would go to bed in a heartbeat. I tried to read it a long time ago because I thought it'd be kind of super interesting. Uh, it was not. So I got a copy over here if you ever want to read it and go to bed. And then the final one is the conference committee. This is the other important one. Uh, I, well, they're all important, but this is one that happens pretty often. Uh, bills have to be the exact same when they come out of the House and the Senate. So let's say it's a spending bill and the House says we're going to spend $50 million, and the Senate passes one that says we're going to spend $30 million. All right. That can't go to the president. They have to be the same exact bill. So a conference committee will come together, the House and the Senate, and they'll work out the differences. And that in that instance, hey, let's just spend 40 million. And it's easy. It's not always that easy, though. All right. So those are those four types. Uh, number 10, what happens in committees and subcommittees? So the main thing that happens is the work on bills. So a bill goes to a committee. Uh, they will typically, if it's a, a big committee, they'll break into subcommittees because they got, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100 bills they're working on. So let's break down the groups into more group work. And so, but they will do investigations into the bill. They'll call in experts. They'll get testimony from uh, people out in the, the industry to try and find out what's going to happen if this bill passes. They'll make changes to it. They'll mark it up and do all sorts of stuff to the bills and then they will send it to the full house or the full senate once they have decided hey this is the right way it should be uh, they also do oversight hearings where they call people in all right the question uh, it could be private citizens it can be bureaucratic members it could be really anybody uh, can get a subpoena to go talk before a committee um what you call it 
oversight committee. And that's the next thing that's up there, the oversight. <laughs> this is them keeping the, the what you call it, the uh, bureaucracy uh, in check, okay? That's their main goal, although they can call in private citizens. I don't know if you've been following the, the, the committee hearings on the, uh, the January 6th, uh, stuff that happened last, or I guess earlier this year in January. Um, they called in a private citizen. It was a former Trump official, uh, Steve Bannon, I think is his name. Uh, they called him in. He refused, and he got arrested because of that. All right? But that's oversight. They call you in, and they question you. It could be because your bureaucratic agency is not doing what they want you to do. Uh, it could be because they think they need to regulate your industry. Your Facebook guy, Mark Zuckerberg, was in uh, some committee oversight hearings a couple of years ago about the data uh, breaches and things like that, the privacy issues that, that existed because of Facebook. Uh, and so, you know, they can call in anybody. Uh, the committee chair, the committee chair is always going to be from the majority party. All right. Because that's one of the perks of being the majority party. And the committee chair sets the agenda for the committee. So, you know, most bills die in committee and it's because the committee chair has kind of been directed, Hey, we're not going to, we're not going to mess with that bill. So they will just put it on the shelf and it'll just sit there and die. Uh, or they'll schedule time for it. They'll talk about it. They'll debate it. And they'll eventually vote on it and send it to the full house. A lot of this stuff is driven by the party in charge. Okay. Uh, they're not going to completely crush the minority side, but they have the ability to. Uh, constituency influence. So we are the constituents. All right. So we are the constituents. We are the voters. Uh, and typically house members, Senate members are going to vote with us because they want to get reelected. If an elected official is constantly voting against our wishes, eventually we're going to recognize that and we'll stop electing them. So the constituency influence, uh, we play a big role. We really drive decision-making, uh, by congressmen because they want to keep us happy. And if it's the president versus our constituents, Congressmen are going to side with us because does the president reelect them? No, they don't. We do. All right. Uh, we already did the differences between the House and the Senate. So obviously there's multiple questions about that. The impeachment process we've done before. So just very quickly, it's a majority vote in the House. And then uh, the Senate has a trial and a two thirds. OK, a two thirds vote gets a uh, federal official kicked out of office. We already did standing committees. We already did conference committees. Uh, congressional checks on Supreme Court. That stands S-C-O-T-U-S stands for the Supreme Court of the U.S. So uh, Congress has a couple of things. First off, the Senate gets to confirm the appointments. Okay, um, so that's kind of before they get to a decision-making process. But once a decision has been made, you know what can the what can Congress do? Uh, well, one of the big things is they can make legislation, all right, or an amendment that kind of gets around the Supreme Court decision. So back in 89, the Supreme Court ruled that flag burning was okay and legal. They overturned state laws. So the federal government decided, you know what, we're gonna make a federal law that makes flag burning illegal. And so they did. Now the Supreme Court still found that as unconstitutional as well, but it was an attempt. They would have been better to probably do an amendment. Okay, that's another thing they can do is they can create an amendment that really freezes the Supreme Court out because the Supreme Court cannot declare an amendment as unconstitutional. All righty. Uh, so those are some of the big ones there. Uh, they also control the jurisdiction. So if they're not happy with 
something that the courts are doing here in Georgia. Maybe they change the the uh, the jurisdiction. And we have three district courts here in Georgia. Maybe they go make us go down to two. And so they get rid of one of the districts uh, to get rid of that those judges that are making them mad. All right. So a couple of things they can make legislation. They can make amendments. Uh, they can change the jurisdiction. Uh, close versus open rule. So this is on the House side. Uh, when amendment goes to the floor, if the rules committee has said that it is open, that means that I can stand up and I can add something to the, the bill. So, hey, here's an education spending bill. Hey, I want to add uh, that we should get new textbooks or something. I don't know what, it, you know, whatever. If it's closed, then it does take it takes no amendments. There's no amendments that can be added to it if it is a closed rule. So open rule amendments can be added closed. They cannot. Uh, redistricting solutions. The big one is to take it away from the states and give it to an independent commission. All right, let's take it out of the, the, the power, out of the people's hands that have a vested interest in staying in power, and let's give it to a group that is going to supposed to be neutral. Okay, so that's the, the big solution. Uh, we haven't done it, and I don't think we will. Baker versus Carr, there's two court cases you got to know. Baker versus Carr and Shaw versus Reno. Baker versus Carr is not a gerrymandering case. It is a redistricting case. Very quickly. Uh, Shelby County, Tennessee, had not redistricted since 1920. And in 1960, the population of Shelby, Tennessee, had really, you know, grown. And so they were being underrepresented there versus some of the rural places which were being overrepresented. What does that mean? Well, I don't know the exact numbers, but let's say there was a million people in the Shelby, Tennessee zone, and there was 200,000 in some of the rural places, all right? Uh, it's tough for one person to represent a million people, and it's much easier for a representative to represent 200,000 people. Does that make sense to y'all? And so it went to the Supreme Court. Uh, they came up with something called one person, or a one, you know, one person, one vote, where they want to try and keep it as equal as possible. And that's why we have the number 750 today. So they try and keep the districts at as equal as possible and around 750,000 people per district, okay? Uh, because of that Baker versus Carr. All right, any questions about the congressional stuff? Everybody good with Congress? Not for this test, but it is a required case. All right, so moving on to the federal judiciary. Uh, original versus appellate jurisdiction. And this is sometimes tough for people to, to, to grasp, and I think it's just because of the term jurisdiction. Because when we see jurisdiction, a lot of times, we go right to some of the, the TV shows we watch and where the local you know, police department doesn't have jurisdiction here or the FBI is coming in and taking the jurisdiction. But for the courts, original just means it's where your court case is first heard, okay? So if you hear that term, original jurisdiction, when it comes to the courts, all it means is that, hey, this is where my case is being heard first. So the district courts, the 94 district courts, at the federal level, all have original jurisdiction. They will, that's where every case, if you break a federal law, that's where you will go. If you're ever charged, don't be charged at the federal level. But if you ever are, okay, you would go directly to a federal district court and that's original jurisdiction. When I passed the school bus a long time ago, back in 2006, um, I had to go to traffic court. That was original jurisdiction, okay? That was where my case first entered the, the, the process. Does that make sense to everybody? Now, if you lose 
your case, what can you do? Appeal. You can appeal. That's appellate jurisdiction. All right. And so there's three levels of the federal court system. You've got the district courts. There's 94 of them. They all have original jurisdiction. They are the, the they do most of the work at the federal court system. Then you've got the appellate courts. There's 12 districts, all right, for the, the, uh, the appellate. And they will only hear appeals. So you've lost your, your federal court case. Hey, I want to appeal this thing. You would go to an appellate court, all right? Uh, and we'll talk about the differences down there at number 25. All right, the rule of four. That just means that if four Supreme Court justices want to hear your case, then it will get heard. Okay. Uh, and there's a, a Latin word. I have a irrational hatred of the Latin language. Uh, we don't use it anymore. It's a dead language, but yet we, well, I guess we do use it, but we still have all these Latin terms that's out there. It's called granting the writ of satoriae, and I probably say it wrong, and that's probably why I hate it so bad. But uh, if you see something about granting a writ, or the cert, or something like that. It is just the Supreme Court deciding to hear your case, okay? So everything gets appealed to the Supreme Court. They put eyes on it at least. They might not hear your case, because remember, they get to, to pick and choose what they hear. Uh, but if four of the nine justices say, hey, we want to hear this case, then it will be heard before the Supreme Court. Activism versus restraint. All right, activism, this is a belief that judges should take an active role in policymaking through the decisions they make, okay? So activism feels like, hey, judges, you have this powerful tool. You get to make decisions in court that can set policy. You should do that more often, all right? So it's a pretty progressive mindset that judges should be making policy on the other hand restraint says you should just rely on the constitution and you should leave it to the people who are elected you've got congressmen and the president that are elected to set the policies you should just make rulings based on their constitutionality stay out of the policy making business all right so activism Hey, you should be out there making decisions that are going to create policy, that are going to, uh, you know, kind of force Congress and the president to do stuff versus restraint, where you should just rely on them, the, the elected institutions, Congress and the president, uh, to make decisions. And then you just rule the constitutionality of those decisions. You're not trying to set precedent. Okay. Uh, sometimes you'll see restraint as original intent. What did the founding fathers mean when they wrote this document? All right, the appellate versus district court. Uh, the appellate court, once again, they only hear appeals. There is no jury. There is no witnesses. There is no evidence. There's no lawyers coming in. You know, oh, we, we've got this DNA evidence we want to present. No. All the appellate courts do is look at your appeal, and then they look at the, the court records to see if your appeal is valid. So if you say, hey, the judge was mean to me, they were unfair to me, they're going to go back and they're going to look at the records and they're going to see everything that the <laughs> that the judge has said to you uh, or whatever, you know, whatever example you're pointing to. And they'll look and see if it happened. OK, sometimes it's on a point of law. All right. Miranda versus Arizona. Most everybody knows this case. 
he appealed saying he didn't know that he didn't have to talk to the police. So the appellate court got it and they looked at the court records. They looked at where his, in, <clears throat> where his confession came from and they were able to decide, hey, yeah, probably should have told him. Okay. So the appellate court is just looking at the facts of the case. They're just looking at the records of the case versus the district court where it's your more traditional, hey, here's the judge, here's your lawyers, here's your witnesses, here's your evidence, there's a jury. It, it's what you see on TV. Okay. Uh, a district court is going to be basically your normal old uh, court. Amicus curiae brief. These are pretty simple, more Latin stuff. Uh, but amicus curiae are just friends of the court. Okay. Uh, and when we say friends of the court, all it is is letters being written to the Supreme Court, encouraging them to rule certain ways. So there's a Texas abortion law that's out there. I think eventually it will get to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court will be asked to rule on its constitutionality. All right. Uh, Pro-choice people will write letters to the Supreme Court justices, as will pro-life people. They'll write letters to the Supreme Court as well. And they're just going to say, hey, this is the law. This is why we think you should rule this way on it. Does the Supreme Court have to listen to any of the letters? No, they don't. Exactly. Uh, but they do read them. Okay. They do look at them. Maybe I shouldn't say read, but they do look through them uh, because it gives them an idea of public opinion. Remember, the, the justices are very insulated from us as far as you know, public opinion because they don't have to run for re-election. So they really don't care what we feel. But this gives them an idea. Well, this is what's going on outside of our walls. Okay. All right. Marbury versus Madison. Uh, I think everybody probably recognizes this case. You get it all the time. This is the one that set judicial review. Um, basically, they the court took the Judiciary Act of 17 something or other. I can't remember what year it was. And said, this is completely unconstitutional the way this is being done you got to start over. And so that gave them the power. Judicial review is not in the Constitution anywhere. Okay. Uh, and so this is what's going to give them the power to declare things unconstitutional. And then finally, the court problems after the decision. Um, basically, it goes back to what we were talking about with Fed 78. The courts are reliant on the other branches. They're reliant on the president. They're reliant on the bureaucracy. They're reliant on Congress to enforce the decisions. And uh, my favorite example of this is, um, and you might get, get this in U.S. history, but it was digital, so I'm not sure how much you remember. But uh, Andrew Jackson and John Marshall, when the Cherokee won their court case about the lands here in Georgia, Worcester versus uh, the U.S., I think, or Worcester versus Georgia, I can't remember what it was. But anyways, the Cherokee Indians won. They were supposed to keep their lands. But Andrew Jackson said, John Marshall, hey, you've made your decision. Now you come and enforce it. And he still kicked them off the land. So, you know, they um, they have to they have to be reliant on the other other people to enforce any of their decisions. All right. Any questions about anything legislative branch or judiciary? All right. There are 30 questions on the test. Um, we'll take it tomorrow, which is Thursday, the 18th. So be in class on Thursday, the 18th. Friday the 19th, uh, test corrections will be available for you. Um, if you want to get those done before you leave for Thanksgiving break, you can come in during first period and get them done and knocked out. 
and not to worry about anything over the break. Don't forget you got AP Classroom FRQ to get done. If you haven't done so yet, be sure you're taking care of that. There are four choices. You pick one. All right, so four choices. You pick one. There's also kind of a review video on how to write an argumentative essay. So be sure you check that out. It's 10 minutes. I apologize for it being so long, uh, but I wanted to be sure and get you all the information you needed to write an argumentative essay. So check that out. Uh, and as always, if you have any questions, let me know. Um, everything's due on Friday. So take care of your business and uh, I'll see you in class. All right.